It really isn't just for kids. But if you're an adult and you've worked in a job before and you've had actual bosses, you probably have experienced what it's like to have people you work for that you don't feel like deserve your respect. I worked in a grocery retail for about four years in management before I came to, to seminary. And I had a really hard experience with one uh, manager who had a very fear-based method of ruling. <laughs> and there was a lot of passive-aggressive behavior. And I had a good friend who... who over the course of years, who worked alongside of me, couldn't take it anymore. And he responded badly to this by trying to take his life. And so you can imagine, and he was a very good friend of mine, you can imagine, this was one of the, the first people, this manager, one of the first people that I really felt deeply bitter against. And it was very hard to forgive this manager. And it's hard, even harder to respect this manager or even to obey this manager. And, and so if, you're, if you've had experiences even remotely like that, you know how the initial command here to obey your earthly masters is not as simple as just saying, oh, oh okay, let me just, let me just do that. There, it's, it's challenging. It's complicated. And maybe what's not for kids, well, it's been said that kids... Think. Adults can think about thinking. And that's what, that's what Paul is going to call us to do here. Now, if, if, you're, if you're not a deeply introspective person and you don't really like to think about things, you just like to do, you're more of an action person, this might be hard for you, or it might be something that you're, you like the opportunity to actually take advantage of. On the other hand, if you are more introspective, you might not want to go where Paul is about to take us because you know where that kind of introspection has taken you before. You know the spiral that it can take you down. But what I would encourage you, no matter where you are, if you're, if you're a deep thinker or you're a deep doer, you can trust Paul here. He's, he's been in your shoes and he knows what he's talking about and he's inspired by the Spirit. So, Let's go ahead and check out what Paul has to say here. First, he starts by calling his, uh, these particular recipients bondservants. Bondservants can mean uh, literally slaves, which if we're going to, if we're really going to dive into this text, we have to, we have to answer some questions about b- biblical or slavery in the Bible. You're going, you're, you're going to be asked about this at some point or another. People will say, how could Paul have regulated slaves? Isn't that condoning slavery? If he was really against it, wouldn't he have condemned it? And I don't, I'm not going to have time for the purpose of this message to really deeply explore that. You can, I can recommend resources if you'd like to come to me afterwards. But the gist of it is, the answer is, that the slavery of the first century church that was present at that time in Rome was different, fundamentally different from American race-based slavery. For one thing, in the first century, it wasn't based on race. 
another thing, it, it wasn't, usually wasn't any longer than 10 years. It was closer to indentured servitude than American slavery was. Uh, another thing, a lot of times uh, Romans, frankly, didn't like to do work. So they would educate their slaves to make them uh, more equipped. So oftentimes the personal development of the first century slave was encouraged, radically different than what American slavery was. I don't mean to romanticize it, though. There, were, there are accounts where some masters, there was a master who, whose slave accidentally killed his favorite pet, and so this master uh, crucifies his slave for that. So there, there were some messed up things going on here, but the overall answer to this is that it was fundamentally different. And what Paul was really after was not mere socioeconomic change. He wanted something deeper, something that would affect that, but something even deeper. He wanted for everyone in the church, for everyone in the world to be reconciled to God. And so that's, that's what this is going to be. This is going to be instructing bondservants in that context of the church. And so we move on to the command here. Obey your earthly masters. Um, that might be pretty straightforward, and it really is. Pastor Conley had a, a very helpful way of putting, though, for, for even when he was talking about how kids should obey uh, their children, or <laughs> children should obey their parents, <laughs> sorry, that, that when, when your authority commands you to do something that God forbids, or when your authority forbids you from doing something God commands, that's the point where you have to draw a line and you have to do what God tells you to do. You can make an appeal. You can, you can offer an alternate suggestion. But ultimately, you have to answer to God on this. So that's important to note on obey your earthly masters. But then he goes on to say, obey them with fear and trembling. That's interesting. I don't know if you're, if you're like me, and I'm reading this in my personal devotions... I read that, I think, fear and trembling. You know what? Um, he, mustn't, he couldn't have meant fear and trembling. He must have meant uh, reverence. Obey with reverence. Or, or, or maybe, maybe, what does reverence mean? Well, it's kind of like respect. Well, what's respect? Well, respect is when I've got people in my life and I, I think about uh, the advice they give me and, and I take it seriously. And sometimes... I even do something about it. And so all of a sudden you go from obedience with fear and trembling to appreciating somebody else's perspective. That's, that's kind of how it goes in my mind. And, and Paul's saying with fear and trembling. Does he mean literally fear and trembling? Like a servile dread? Trembling? When was the last time you trembled at something? Is this what he's talking about? Well, even if he's being hyperbolic, Paul's trying to make a point here that your obedience goes beyond mere obedience. That it has to do with your disposition, how you relate with, how you even feel about your authorities. We don't yet know, in this based on this passage, we don't yet know exactly what he means by that, but he's going to explain it later, so let's continue. 
with, obey with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. Maybe when you think of sincerity, you think about when you come to church and you greet someone. We don't really shake hands as much anymore. But you greet, you greet someone and you say, it's nice to see you. Did you really mean that? It, or, was, or is this like a, a socially acceptable way of avoiding some awkward social interaction? That's kind of like what Paul has in mind, kind of. Single literally means, since, uh, uh, or sincere literally means single. He's saying obey with singleness of heart. And heart for Paul has to do with your desires. What drives you? What pushes you to do what you do, your motive. And Paul's saying, obey with a single motive. Don't obey with with ulterior motives. And so for the slave, he's not supposed to go to work trying to, having ulterior motives as he serves his master. That's not what Paul is after, okay? But how do you get that single motive? You can't just flip a switch here. What is that? Well, next, he says, as with with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. As you would what? Christ. As you would obey Christ with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Which, and he's saying here, if you notice, as you would obey Christ with fear and trembling. Which means, this kind of gets back to our not just for kids, We are supposed to obey Christ with fear and trembling. And if we can unlock the meaning here, we will know better how to obey our authorities with fear and trembling. So what does it mean to obey Christ with fear and trembling? Well, if you're going to ask that, you really can't ask what your idea of fearing Christ is. You've got to think about this in, in the mind of the slave who's listening to this for the first time. And likely, the letter of Ephesians would have been read start to finish in one sitting. And so, for the slave, when they would think, fear Christ, tremble before Christ, they would think back to previous parts of this letter. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us through a little excursus We're going to go back into Ephesians, and it might be kind of hard to track with this, but I encourage you, really focus in on this, zero in on this, because it'll be worth the the journey. So if we think about previously what Paul has said, and we were to rewind, we would go to Ephesians 5, verses 21, or 1 to 21, and there's this particular passage, if we can get that up on the slide, yep, there we go. We're going to see Paul, he mentions in verse 21 that we're supposed to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the same Greek word, phobos. It's where we get our our word for phobia. He's calling them to submit to one another out of fear for Christ. And this is what sets off this whole, whole train of thinking that you're supposed to have you're supposed to have wives submitting to husbands, and you're supposed to have children submitting to parents, and then slaves to their masters. Well, where does that come from, that kind of fear for Christ? Well, if, if you look at if you trace it backwards, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be 
filled with the Spirit. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Fear of Christ comes from the Spirit coming to you and filling you. Which might raise a question in your mind. I thought I have the Holy Spirit as soon as I'm saved. And that's true. But Paul is talking about this in a, the Spirit's filling in a different sense. That you can grow in the Spirit's filling. What is it that the Spirit fills you with that actually creates a fear for Christ, a good fear for Christ? Well, if you were to go a little further back, the key text for this is Ephesians 3, verses 16 to 19. We'll read that here. Paul is praying that the Ephesians, that according to the riches of his, that's God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's all one passage. And you notice there, the Spirit comes and he fills you full of Christ. And he fills you full of God. This is an intertrinitarian act in which you are filled with the, the very with God Himself. But in particular, if you read the context here, Paul is has been in chapter two. He's been emphasizing how. Well, yeah, we'll we'll just read it right here. The context shows that the fear of the Lord happens when the Spirit fills you with two realities, your embarrassing unloveliness and God's humbling loveliness. That comes from Ephesians. If you were to look back at Ephesians 2, you would see how Paul is exploring what the Ephesians used to be. He describes them as children of wrath. And he describes them as having having been in rebellion to God. And he's, he's putting that in their face, encouraging to think back to what they were and their past failures so that they could see it in light of who God is and how he sends his son to take on the failure that they have into himself and to totally deal with their guilt and to make them his children so for the Spirit to come and fill you full of Christ and God, this is what it means. It means that the Spirit comes and gives you a fresh sense of your past failures, your past sins, but only in light of who God is and what He's done. And it's when you're filled so full of this that it grips you, it controls you in a real sense, that you're experiencing the fear of the Lord. When you fear something, it controls you. It makes you do things. That's the idea here. So, 
the context shows that what we need is a fresh experience of our embarrassing unloveliness and God's humbling lovingness. This is what C.S. Lewis was illustrating when he talks about, uh, you remember in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe? Uh, the Pevensey siblings have, have, uh, have made it to the beaver's house. And they're, 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 they've eaten, they're warm, they're comfortable again, and, and they've had conversation. And then Mr. Beaver brings up a very important topic. And he says, Aslan is on the move. And Lewis tells the story so that each of the children have an individual response to that news. And here's, here it is. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror because Edmund was the rebel. He was the traitor. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. They all have a very unique individual response to the name of Aslan because of their relationship to him. And that's really what Paul is getting at here. If you are relating with God in terms of your un unloveliness and his lovingness, you will have an internal res response that corresponds with that. But if you are not, if you have a lopsided, lopsided view of God, if you see him as just holy, just a judge up there who's ready to slap you over the head every time you do something wrong, you will have a bad fear of him, a dread fear of him. Now, in case you think that this is a unique idea to Paul, a part of, a part of this, as a part of this journey through the scriptures, we're actually going to go to, we're going to go to Exodus 20, 20. This is actually going to help us understand this from a, a broader biblical perspective. You see Moses saying to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Does this sound familiar to you? This is Exodus 20. The children of Israel have made it outside of Egypt, and, and they're before Mount Sinai, and it's scary. Because the fear they have for them, they only see God as a holy God punishing sinful people. And so for them, they have a dread of him. And God comes with his Ten Commandments. Do you remember what, what God says right before he gives the Ten Commandments? Very important. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's who I am. That's my covenant loyalty to you. This is my loyal love to you. And now, because of that, I want you to obey me in these ten particular ways. And after God reveals these ten commandments, the people are scared still. And what's Moses' response? He says, don't fear. God's testing you so that you'll fear him. 
He's saying, don't fear in the, the, the dread kind of fear. But see his covenant loyalty. And see his call to fight sin at the same time. So that you will not sin. So that a fear of him will be before you. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And again, why Jeremiah, the prophet, speaking God's words to the people, says, I will cleanse them from all of their guilt, and all of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall become to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Do you see here? God's putting in their face their guilt on the one hand, and also his forgiveness, his covenant loyalty. Because it's when you're gripped by both of those, you will have the fear of the Lord. But how do you you grow in the fear of the Lord? It's one thing to know, okay, I've got to see God in his fullness. I've got to see his holiness, and I've got to see his love, but, but I don't always feel fear for him. I don't always live in fear of him in this healthy sense. How do I grow in that? Well, this is is what Paul says next. So let's, let's see what he says next. He says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Paul himself is pushing the the bond servants to look inside of themselves and to explore their motivations for why they obey their masters. You know, Paul could have said, don't obey with bad motives. And then he could have just moved on. But he actually uh, says very insightful terms here. Eye service and people pleasers. Eye service. Doing work only for either, either only when you're being seen or doing work so that you'll be seen. Do you see the difference there? It kind of goes the same for people pleasing. You could, you could do the minimum amount of work as long as you just make your boss happy. Or you could see your boss as the most respectable, most competent individual, and you want their approval. And so what do you do? You do whatever it takes to make them happy. You do whatever it takes to make, hear them say, you did good, good job. And it, and it satiates you. It makes you feel good about yourself again. And it gives you that sense of inner calm as long as you have it. But as soon as it goes, you're anxious, you're insecure. This is, this is why Paul is calling the bondservants to look inside of themselves And so for us, it's a call to look inside ourselves, too. To explore, okay, in what sense do I obey my masters for eye service? In what ways do I do this for pleasing people? 
This is hard. In fact, um, many people, even Christians, will say, no, you're not supposed to do this. You're, you're not supposed to think about your past failure because God's dealt with it at the cross and you're forgiven and you shouldn't think about your guilt feelings. You just need to see that God has forgiven you and move on because guilt is dangerous. It can harm your mental health. So uh, I've been, been reading a book called the, the Coddling of the American Mind. And a couple of the authors uh, are, are cognitive behavioral therapists. This is, this is an approach to mental health that emphasizes the power of cognition, the power of your ability to think. And so what they're calling you to do is, one of the examples is, okay, let's say you've got a fella and he's got these, these voices in his head that say, you're a failure. Look at your failures. You never amount to anything. You're good for nothing. And so their advice is, okay, well, take those voices and listen to them through the most ridiculous, goofy, villain voice you've ever heard. This is actually something they, they write in the book as, as advice for this. And then the, the, the person will think, oh, you know what? That really is ridiculous. I'm not a failure. Now that I hear it in this tone of voice, this is, is really absurd. And then they can, they can grow in mental health. But that doesn't deal with your real guilt. That doesn't deal with the fact that you've still failed and that you probably will in the future. And what Paul is offering here is something so much more robust a fear of the Lord, where you see him actually taking your guilt and loving you so much, he puts it onto his son and pours out his wrath for you onto his son. And that deals with it. And in this, this one act, you see both his holiness and justice and his love and grace. And it gives you the inner calm, the inner sense of stability to be able to actually explore yourself and be honest with yourself, to come to grips with your failure without actually being gripped by your failure. And so that's what we need to do. So if you are an employee for a company, for anyone who's over you right now and authority over you, how do you... How do you, it's not really a question of do you experience this, this tendency to, for, to work for eye service or people pleasing. It's really a question of how and in what ways and how much. And what you're responsible to do is actually explore this. If, if your boss never acknowledged you, would you work as well for them? If, if you're, when your boss critiques you, what's your response Oh, no, there were, there, were, there were extenuating circumstances. I did my best. This is, this is this really uh, outrageous expectations. Or do you have the, the inner sense and stability to actually admit you were wrong in, in areas that you might have been? How about when they praise you? Is it like, oh, satiation. I'm actually somebody. <laughs> it could be that if you are working... If you're working for, for your boss's approval, what you're doing here is actually being gripped more by a fear of man than you're gripped by a fear of God. And what Paul is saying is God's approval is so much better. 
that man's approval doesn't even compare. And that's why, that's why you're not supposed to be obeying by way of eye service or people pleasing. Well, what, is this, what does this look like to actually, now that you've identified your areas of failure, what does this look like to move on and consider what it looks like to grow in the favor of God? Okay, he says, but as bondservants of Christ, he's reiterating this, you're supposed to consider yourself, your identity is that of a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He wants obedience that's motive deep. Rendering, uh, yeah, rendering service with good will. Uh, good will. This is a hard one to uh, interpret. It's not mentioned, this word's not used much in the Bible elsewhere. It's actually used more in um, 2nd Maccabees, of all places, which is not an inspired book, but it gives us some interesting glimpses into the historical background. And there, it, it means uh, uh, the idea of tact, of sensitivity. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, I took the Myers-Briggs personality test, and that's just not one of my, one of my qualifications there. That, this is not a personality trait. This is, this is an ability to be sensitive to the needs of people and the situation and to meet them appropriately. Your, your personality will flavor that sensitivity, but it will not determine whether or not you have it. Your personality does not nullify the need to actually go and be sensitive. Goodwill, as to the Lord and not to man. Again, this isn't to be for man's approval. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Now, this is interesting, because for some of us, this, this might be hard. For me, this was hard to really grasp. He's talking about a reward from the Lord. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I feel, like, I feel like I'm working for pay to the Lord. Uh, and, and thinking, I know I'm thinking wrong, so what does Paul really mean here? And the context, I think, means this reward is, is God's favor. It's more spiritual blessings that, like mentioned in chapter 1. I think it's the greater indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But even if you thought of it in terms of, oh, it's crowns in heaven, it's a mansion on high, even those would be important and special because they're from him. This is like... Uh, this is like when my wife, Amber, makes, makes me a meal. It's, it's special to me because it comes from her. Yes, I love her cooking, but it's primarily special because it comes from her. If I, if I were to say, you know what, no, I don't want to work. I, I want to show you my devotion to you by refusing the meals you make for me. That's, that's, that's not devotion. That's actually a, a cold apathy. And what Paul wants for us to see is that this is an incentive. God's favor, God's rewards like this should attract us, should, should excite us. That he would give favor, undeserved favor, by our, our, 
our attempts to honor him and obey him by obeying our masters should motivate us. This is what Paul's talking about. Whether he is a bondservant or free, it's, it's regardless of your status. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is that this doesn't have to do with your, your status in terms of culture. God gives you his favor not based on your actions, not based on your behavior, but based on what he's done. And because of that, when we're, when we're fully gripped by, more gripped by the love he has for us, the more we need to obey him and obey our authorities. Uh, this is exactly what this is exactly what um, Jesus did for us. He, you remember in Philippians chapter 2, he actually comes as a servant, makes himself a servant for us, takes on the form of a man, is humbled to, to death, even the death of the cross. And it's to create in us, make us new people, make us his servants. And because of that, he calls us to then go and obey our employers in this particular way, moved because of his holiness and his mercy. And as we grow in that, then we'll be able to obey better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your graciousness to us. Thank you for loving us when we didn't deserve it and for taking our guilt onto you. I pray that you would, you would grip us with both your loving kindness and, uh, make, and your, your holiness and make yourself fresh to us again. I pray this in Jesus' name.